0: how hard you hit it's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward to infinity and beyond some people without brains do an awful lot of talking don't they it's classified you're talking to me i could tell you but then i'd have to kill
1: you i can't lie. expecto patronum
2: entertainment x
0: you never know what you're going to get
2: For this episode, I get to chat with Ray Bocour and we have a wonderful conversation about his career, his life, his ways of being and thoughts. We really dive deep into his upbringing and how that's affected the upbringing of his children and projects he's worked on and projects he's working on. So this is a really a really wonderful conversation and Ray, thank you for having this conversation with me. Everyone else enjoy. We're back. I'm Clayton Howe, and today with me is Raymond Bocour. Ray, how you doing?
0: I am doing great. Clay, how are you?
2: I'm. I am absolutely wonderful. I'm two hours behind you here in Calgary, Canada. I'm. You're. I'm assuming you're in New York City. Correct. I.
0: I am. You're right.
2: Wonderful. This is wonderful. We're gonna have a. We're gonna have a bunch of um, d- different conversations here throughout this this uh, morning. I'm, we're gonna touch on the glorious death of comrade. What's his name? Um, a show that's coming up for you, writing. Yeah. Uh, we'll talk about some performing and so much more, but I want to go back to the beginning of time for Ray. What were <laughs> your, what were your theater dreams growing up? You know,
0: I, uh, it, it's funny, my theater dreams were almost non-existent because <laughs> okay, I didn't, uh, yeah, I didn't really discover theater until I was in college. I grew up, uh, I was born in 1965. I have, uh, for older siblings. So my world was very much about uh, rock and roll and everything that was happening really in the music world. My older brothers and sisters were uh, musicians, all of them. And uh, uh, and I just, you know, I worship them. So I, I walked around the house kind of listening to the Beatles and listening to all the music they were listening to and really getting that uh, into my bones and thinking this is what I this is everything this is what I want and of course I think for me anyway uh, being the youngest of five I wanted their attention I wanted to feel like I could do something as well as they could they were all pretty funny and they were all uh, you know like I said uh, into music and, and uh, two of them were really you know great musicians at a young ages. so I picked up a guitar and I started uh, learning everything as I could as soon as I possibly could get my hands on it. Cause that was kind of my way forward as a, as an individual at a very young age at like four or five, I started playing ukulele and I transferred over to the guitar and um, it was, absolutely a psychological need for me <laughs> yeah. to to succeed in that in that world and i think i did uh not necessarily because i had any more ability than than other kids uh that age but because uh the world that i was in just everything just said this is what's important right now so yeah so i grew up uh, um playing guitar and that was my main thing and i didn't think about theater at all, until somebody asked me when I was in college to write music for a show, and I walked into a theater pretty much for the first time. I mean, I did high school musicals, I played in the pit and stuff, but I was never thinking about theater, and I didn't go to my first Broadway show until I was, uh, I think, a senior in high school. It was Cats, the original company of Cats. Oh. And... It was interesting, but it didn't, uh, it didn't like trigger anything in me. But when I was in college and somebody asked me to go into this theater, I walked in and I was like, oh, these are my people. And I love this world and I love the, the, um, the idea of using music to tell a story. And I suppose it kind of began from there. Uh, I was driven to, to, um, something just said, try and act. And I, and so I wound up doing both music, writing music, and um, and acting in theater. And that's how I first got into it.
2: Was this fostered by your parents, the musicianship at a young age, you know, around four or five? Was that something that they were putting on you? Or was that you were just finding this yourself and your parents were like, great, music, that's great?
0: Oh, well, uh, I'm sure that I was allowed to think that it was my own uh, <laughs> drive. <laughs> Yeah. Well, my mom was really good about this. If you said, "Oh, I'm really interested in painting," then she would get you a bunch of paints, you know. Or if if uh, if you said, "Oh, wow, I really like sports," she'd she'd um, you know provide you with whatever you needed and and opportunity to grow in that area. But having said that, she herself was a music major, and uh, I'm sure her eyes widened just a little bit more. When I succeeded at guitar, than if I had succeeded at anything else. So, uh, uh, of course, <laughs> you know what I mean. So you, yeah, you kind of reach out for that kind of thing.
2: What were your if parents?
0: It's, if it's having the desired effect, then I think. So. Yeah, that might have been some musical ability that that was part of our genes or something. But I I'm no expert in any of that. But I know this: I'm horrible at sports. <laughs> <laughs> The, uh... Despite I'm sure not wanting to look like an idiot when I was playing, I, I nevertheless was quite fat.
2: <laughs> no, that's yeah, I mean, I'm right there with you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Congratulations. Yeah, well, thank you.
2: Uh what did your what were your parents teaching you about work ethic?
0: Oh, you know, I m- my dad just did it. He didn't actually say anything about it. He just worked and it just felt like the right thing to do. He never browbeat us at all, or or said you must do this or do that. But I, uh, we, we loved him, and we we uh, watched him work. And uh, you know, he went off to to the office every morning and uh, came back late and hardly ever missed. And so he was a, a, in in so many ways, just a role model. That was what he. How he chose to teach us, really, and it I think it worked really well and my because my older brother and sisters have uh, great work ethic, work ethic too, so I got some of that uh through through them as well but um my mom was different i mean she was your i 'm going to say typical stay at home mom that's uh, i think a cultural thing that was imposed on a lot of women and uh, i don 't think that she was Necessarily uh, thrilled with that at all, right. but she also wasn't a rebel. I think she read a lot of uh, you know the the uh, women at the time who were writing out, uh, speaking out, and uh, was extremely aware of of all of that. But she was not herself like going out and you know and and fighting for rights. She was staying home and raising five kids which is a massive uh, undertaking. So uh, that sounds like a like I've gone afield from your question, but I actually think it's part of her work ethic was
1: yeah.
0: a, a tremendous amount of work at home taking care of these kids. And I don't think she... She, um, she never made me practice, but she would suggest it. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> and uh, I would I would sometimes do it. And again, I think the, the way that I was influenced or I picked up on these things was in part just to, you know, I loved my parents both so much that I wanted to make them happy. And so if she suggested practicing, then I was happy to, to uh, oblige. And... Like any kid, you know, I resisted or whatever sometimes, but I wound up she let me fail, I think is what it was. Okay. And but I didn't want to fail. And so if a lesson came and I wasn't ready or I hadn't practiced all week, then I I knew it and I felt it and I didn't like it. So I and she would yeah, she would she taught me how to drill things, like how to how to practice properly. And uh, I think the 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 greatest gift was that she was that she just gave us all love and then said, now what do you want to do? And didn't, you know, and kind of was not impressed by doing nothing Yeah. <laughs> or sitting around. And I think, yeah, it was like this, she would come home with albums, like, you know, even albums that were not like Chaka Khan. She came home with <laughs> Al Green and, Like, it was just a career, like, all different kinds of artists, and she would just play it and, like, listen to how great these people are. And so you'd listen, and you'd go, oh, right. You'd kind of point out the goal itself of being a great musician. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's the best way to, I don't know, I'm trying to raise my kid right now, and I think that's really the best way is yeah you hold them to some standards but it's never about browbeating it's just about sharing look what you can well, look what people can do and you help them you know inspire them to try and to try and do it and then there was one time when I wanted to quit lessons because it was just so frustrated and she said okay well you can go to camp and I hated the idea of camp I had gone to camp once and I cried all the way through and it was just filled with camp back then, was just trouble with sports, there weren't music camps or anything like that. Right, <laughs> so it right. It's was like, no, no. That was <laughs> the kind of the one time that I rebelled and she helped me to do it. But, but her way was to say, well, you got to do something with your life, right? So choose what it is. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Oh, I love that. Such a great answer, and you're bringing up so many great points. I mean, the idea of you know giving love, but have you know there's no strings attached to it. It's just like you have to do something, but I'm not going to force you into what I think you should do, which is yeah, the best kind of upbringing.
0: It yeah, it was kind of it was remarkable, and you know these both my parents were not perfect by any long by any stretch of the imagination, but. Uh, for the most part, they admitted it. <laughs> and, yeah, I know mean, who uh, is. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. They're very reasonable, very smart people. But I think one of the greatest gifts was that they treated us like people. And uh, so so we were, you know, our opinions and our, our desires and goals and stuff really mattered. And uh, as a result, you know... Uh, whatever you walk it down the street, or you, you you walk it, and you're sitting in the subway, and you hear parents sometimes just giving their kids a hard time. It's not most of the time, but you know, sometimes you will encounter a parent who's doing that, and you and I. Ugh, it's so it's so harsh to my to my ears because I just never heard it. I never really had that, right. and and I can't imagine that you do anything else but rebel against that at some point. And maybe you rebel in a good way if you're lucky or, or, um, uh, you know, just kind of have a, a good inner compass. But I, I wouldn't be surprised if you rebel in different, different ways, you know, and go out and get, you know, into trouble or, or give up on things or say, well, I'll, I'll show them I'm not going to achieve anything. And <laughs> that's so sad. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, is that something you talk about with a lot of folks in your show is uh, they're growing up in their work ethic,
2: right? Oh, my God, yeah. Well, because I think it's so important the way you talk to yourself or the way you're spoken to. And I realize that, you know, the way maybe someone speaks to their kid is the way they talk to themselves. Or, you know, even in like a relationship, you'll let someone talk to you as bad or as good as you talk to yourself. And the second it crosses that line, that's when you rebel, you know. But it's this interesting self-talk that we all have that dictates literally everything relationships yeah. to career, to all of it.
0: I I'm, We're kindred spirits. I totally agree. I think that's uh, so much of what we do out in the world are those kind of voices or how our neurons connected when we were, you know, between the ages of zero and two <laughs> yeah. or five, you know, or are still connecting now even, but uh, those very, very formative, what's the word, formative? Yeah, Yeah, formative. formative, Uh, Yeah, yeah, they literally form your brain, and I think you go out into the world, and and you are either able to be kind to others, or you're competing with others, or you're, you know, out to prove something for yourself, or you're out to, you know, knock others down. So, uh, make yourself feel better about yourself than, you know, than reality necessarily suggests. So, yeah, there's a lot of folks out there who are battling with that. And, yeah, I think theater actually is one of, one of the things I love so much about theater. I mean, music is so uh, deep. It's kind of deeper almost than, than theater. But theater was able to put words, to attach words. I was growing up in, in uh, you know, jazz circles and classical kind of circles, and it was never about the lyrics. And... Um, But theater, I found, was really able to put words to very specific ideas that I hadn't uh, had much uh, experience with until college. So I kind of got the emotional theater thing going. uh, Sorry, the emotional musical thing going. But when theater happened, it kind of added a certain intellectual aspect. So uh, I was able to find. I found that theater was uh, a way of Addressing a lot of these issues, you know, and characters—Who are we as people? How do we grow up? And uh, how? What are the voices in our heads that are that are uh, creating our interactions in the social world? Yes. So it absolutely relates to everything, you know, that we're talking about, and that you talk about on a regular basis. Is who who are the who are people, and <laughs> what yeah. do we? What the heck are we doing out there? And that is something that yeah, when I, when I got into college, I really, really resonated with uh, in terms of discovering theater and getting very excited about it.
2: What did that look like for you with the excitement of theater going you know, through college and then post-college?
0: Oh, yeah. It was, um, what was, I think, very uh, exciting for me was that I had grown up, you know, from five to age 20. I was really working on musical technique and musical expression and and you know trying to uh work on my art and i got pretty far you know i did per- per- perform professionally and i went to new england conservatory blah 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 for for jazz and and um but, so i had a tremendous amount of experience uh for a young artist uh, but when i discovered theater it was both new and old at the same time like i was like oh right here's a new art form but i'm not new at being or trying to be an artist right like i was like i know how to practice and i know how to develop myself and i know what technique is in relationship to expression and i was able to uh, transfer a tremendous amount of what i had learned growing up as a musician i think pretty quickly to being an actor and using my body as a as a instrument uh and, uh, you know, having the rhythms of theater be part of it and the music of theater be, be, uh, be part of my, uh, ex- my expression. So, uh, I think that's what it looked like. It looked like uh, me picking up a new instrument, uh, after studying music for so
2: long. Now I gotta, but, I really quick before we move on here. You, uh, you mentioned New England Conservatory yeah. and then said blah blah blah. <laughs> that's <laughs> that's a, that was, that's a reputable establishment. <laughs> oh, I'll just drop that name there. Yeah. What was the uh, what was the focus for you? Was it was it guitar or voice? You know, I by the time I was
0: seventeen and applying, I wanted to be a composer, but I had grown up without much uh, notation practice. I didn't really know how to cite. I couldn't sight read at all. I could write things down pretty well, but being a composer by their standards uh, and applying as a composition major was very difficult. But I was a good player, so I auditioned as a a jazz uh, guitarist, performance major, and I got in. And then once I was in, I took a bunch of composition, classes and i eventually switched majors but i was going to two schools at the same time because tufts university has this program with new england conservatory music so i it's a five-year program and you get two degrees so i was an english major at tufts and then a, a jazz composition major at new england and so yeah i was doing both same time, that was what really enabled me to discover theater, because Chops at the time had a pretty exciting program, and um, I, I didn't wind up majoring in it, but I, I, once I discovered it, in my final two years of that five-year program, I, uh, I just dove right in, and, and I, you couldn't get me out of that building.
2: <laughs> and in that time, you, you mentioned you had, been, you had been writing, or you'd been asked to write, and that was kind of the beginning of it for you?
0: Yeah, I wrote music for uh the guy who lived next door to me uh was a theater director at the college and he said, Well you write music, let's let's work on something together and he was directing some show. I honestly I can't quite remember the name of the show right now. Uh some avant garde little thing that was uh, very popular to do at uh Tufts was sure. <laughs> dark avant garde things that nobody had ever heard of. But uh, but I walked in and I, I, uh, I just loved the theater and I loved the process of rehearsing things and and laying music under it and figuring out how we were going to you know do this thing. I also liked that it wasn't so lonely. It was uh, very social compared to uh, writing music. Uh, or my experience writing music. Anyway, I wasn't much of a you know go out and play with people and bands uh, much. But um. But but you know it was very social at a time when I really needed it, and so yeah, so that's kind of where I, I, I it opened me up in a lot of ways. And I thought at first I'm just going to write music for theater. That's terrific. But then I I was uh, you know it's funny I, I um David Costable is an actor who's done you know extremely well. He's on Billionaires and he's on TV. You see him a lot. He was in Breaking Bad at playing Dale. Oh yeah, the, uh, or Gale. I guess his character's name is you know the the kind of coffee loving assistant that that he had for a while. He's terrific uh, in that show, but he was at Tufts with with uh, me at the same time, and I walked. He was in that first uh, play that I did.
2: Oh no! And I
0: walked in and I saw him being fantastic as an actor, and I thought, I think I could do that, and it. <sighs> it was funny because he made it look easy, even at that young age. And when I started doing it, I was like, Oh, this is not as easy as he made it look. Ah. (laughs) So he was, he was a real inspiration and, uh, and then became a good friend. But, uh, yeah, that kind of walking in and and just thinking, I bet I can act. And, and having that part of me woken up as well, was was very exciting. And, um, and being accepted as a comp- composer, I think, uh, for theater pretty early on by a bunch of people that I wound up still working with sometimes to this day was, was um, you know, was great. It was definitely social as well as artistic for me.
2: Yeah. Now, you you did ended up doing a good amount of performing after uh, college <laughs> as a result.
0: Yeah. I said yes to everything I could possibly uh, say yes to, I uh, there was three more years of school uh, after I tried uh, my best in in Boston to do a bunch of work and finally I thought you know what I should be I want to go to drama school and really work on my acting so I applied to a bunch of schools but I wound up uh, getting into just two of them and choosing to go to London for to uh, the Central School of Speech and Drama which was a great uh, three years, fantastic three years for me. So formative, so um, so fun, and and uh, being in London was cool and all. Oh, of that Yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, when I got back, it was 1995, and uh, moved to Manhattan for the first time, really. Uh, and yeah, I just said yes to everything because uh, you know I didn't really have any connections. Nobody knew what Central was, that school. It wasn't like I had graduated. It was top school in London, but nobody had heard of it over here. So. Right, <laughs> so, right. Or nobody cared. And, you know, there was none of that kind of showcase stuff that gets you agents or anything. So I, ju- I really just said I met people and I wound up playing, you know, small roles and small things downtown and that hardly anybody saw. But, I, um, but yeah, I ate it up. And, and I also continued writing music for stuff. So, yeah, it was, I don't know. Just uh, tons of stuff, dozens and dozens of shows.
2: Was it a natural progression, Uh, as natural as a career in performing can be, going towards uh, Chicago? The musical, not the city.
0: (laughs) Yeah, well, that's funny because I also never. Oh, well, I think it's funny. Let's find out what people think. But um, I had never thought, despite growing up in music and then switching over to theater. I still had some of that Tufts University um, avant-garde, you know, elitist kind of thoughts about musicals, and I didn't want to do it. Right. And I thought, okay, West Side Story is brilliant. I know that, because listen to that music. And then somebody said, you should really listen to Sweeney Todd. And I listened to that, and I went, okay, West Side Story and Sweeney Todd are brilliant. But, Mm -hmm. and then somebody said, well, go ahead and listen to Cabaret 2, and I listened to that, and I was like, okay, what's that story? Cabaret, and you know, those are brilliant. Right. And Sweeney Todd, but nothing else. And then gradually, one by one, I was like, oh, Guys and Dolls is really great. And I may not have loved Cats, but i loved, you know, I discovered enough of musical theater greatness to go, oh, right, this, is, this can be really unbelievably great.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, and I didn't consider myself a singer. I had, you know, grown up playing, not singing, and uh, I don't sound particularly good at every kind of uh, style of, <laughs> you know, <laughs> the honesty. Yeah, the the brutal honesty. You know, you're not going to hire me to, uh, you know, sing an aria from an opera ever. <laughs> uh, but I could do the char- you know, character singing on pitch kind of thing. And over the years, I think I've, I've studied more singing and gotten better at it. But uh, but right out of the gate, I had no interest in doing uh, musicals at all. And I started to work in, in plays and, you know, did some Shakespeare and did some this and some of that. And I was just as I was starting to get somewhere uh, and book some real... Uh, good gigs regionally and, and stuff somebody oh, i got i landed an agent and in new york and he said we're sending you out to audition for there's was, was a number of things that i auditioned for before chicago but uh, i was like all right if you want to hear me try and sing fine and i would go, go along to these auditions <laughs> one of them was for for Jerry Zachs, he was uh, uh, doing a show called Epic Proportions, which um, was so successful that you've never heard of it. But <laughs> I and I kind of worked at that audition, right. and then the next uh, or the, the the night actually the night before that audition, I spoke to uh, this. Fellow. I was volunteering at my Buddhist center in Manhattan, where I go all the time, and he said oh, how's it going with your career? And I said, oh, I have this big audition for Jerry Axe tomorrow. And he said, what are you doing here? I said, well, I'm volunteering. And he said, go home and start practicing for your audition. You need to really be working hard. And I was kind of like, oh, right. I'm kind of working, but I'm not really working hard at these auditions. So I went along, and I was fine. But I, I didn't get even a call back. But the next audition I had was for Chicago, and I said, okay, this one I'm really going to work hard at. So I bought a ticket to the show and I hired coaches and I, I you know, really practiced. It was totally off book. And I had a whole thing in my mind about what I was going to do with the character from beginning to end. And, and that's the one I booked. And that's the one that I've been involved with uh, on and off for 20 years. Uh, so that was some good advice that fellow gave. I gave him, I uh, bought him a ticket to the sh- to, sh- to Chicago <laughs> to see me on Broadway <laughs> years, years later. Uh, but uh, but yeah, that was uh, that was my transition into musicals was realizing that they were valuable and great, and then getting and then realizing that I actually had a place in one.
2: Did you just return to it in August? Oh, um, or am I making that up? Because I know the the internet is, uh, you know, sometimes true, sometimes false.
0: <laughs> you know, it's it's so funny. I don't remember. Uh, <laughs> it might have been January. I think okay. maybe January. Sure. The reason I don't remember is because I've been in and out of that show on Broadway for so long. I guess i did the tour for a, for a few years and then uh, I, I i had my broadway uh debut on two thousand two thousand one. 2001 i think it was august of 2001 yeah it was just before september 11th uh and so it's been but you know years on and then a year off and then you know six months on and then three months off and it's just been in and out in and out all the time so i at this point don't even I, I don't even remember. It just feels like I've been doing it for forever. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't tell you when I started again. But, uh, yeah, but I've been yeah, I've, I've been doing it now at least since January. I think, yeah, I was off last year to do uh, a Williamstown thing and a few other things, including writing music with, for something. But then they called and I said, yeah, this is a good time. Let's come back.
2: Now I'm just curious because I, you know, and I've heard of a number of people, you know, discuss how they're like, you know, they're on and off in shows, um, you know, just by the nature of the rotation of actors and whatnot. But what does that look like for you? Is that just a, a call from your agent, like, hey, do you have the next three months available, or can you make the next three months available? And it's kind of just this back and forth, Are you calling them and being like, hey, I have six months coming up. If you need me,
0: um, generally, what has happened? Uh, uh, it is yeah, they'll call and they'll say, are you interested in this time or that time? And I'll right. call back and I'll, and I'll say, well, I'm doing something else or I am, I am free, but I need this week off because I have a, you know, concert or I have a, something else, you know, that I'm doing and we just work it out. And then, right. yeah. So uh, generally it's such a great job. And now I've got, you know, my daughter. So I, I really appreciate, uh, being able to have something so, uh, so trustworthy as a, as a gig, you know, it, it, it's kind of un unheard of. It's almost, you know, it's so rare that somebody has a show where they can, they don't age out of. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Rare. <laughs> and,
2: almost unheard of. <laughs>
0: yeah. Rare. And let alone that show being something that is on Broadway and it's, you know, uh, name above the title and, and, uh, and unfortunately, relevant, constantly relevant. I wish it was irrelevant now, but uh, right. <laughs> a show about spin and getting away with murder is, is uh, unfortunately very relevant all the time. It's still technical. But, yeah, but it's still meaningful. And that's what I, I, I would go crazy if, I, if it were a show that was just silly. I would get tired of the jokes or whatever and, and, you know, not be able to really bring it. But, oh, uh, I love Silly. What am I saying? <laughs> but if it were, you know, if it were not a really great, meaningful show that was giving people something with, of substance, then I would maybe have a hard time. But I I never get tired of actually performing this show. I never do. It's crazy. But, um, but uh, I, you know, I'll get tired of, oh, I've got to drive to the theater again, or i got to, you know... Go to work, but
2: right, the actual
0: right. work of performing the show, I um, I never tire of. It's That's, always
2: I mean, yeah, it's a highly entertaining show. <laughs> highly entertaining.
0: <laughs> the yeah. um,
2: so and then and uh, just to touch on this a little bit, because I, I do want to get to your writing as well. Um, you was it a natural again a natural progression into some of that television and film work, or it kind of just a mix between the two?
0: Yeah, it was a bit of a mix. I mean you, you 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 want to try for it and uh you know, you and your agents sit down and work out what can I try for and how how are we gonna go for this and and uh and then you, you audition and before you know it you book something and then you show up and you do it. So uh I haven't done that much. You know, I've never had a regular gig on, on a uh, a TV show or something where you're really working out every day on, you know, behind a camera. Uh, and the day player thing, or, you know, three days here or four days there on a shoot has been, uh, you know, I'm, I, I feel as if I haven't done it enough to get really comfortable with it. So it's, it's, uh, it's a lot of work. Uh, or I should say it's a lot of, it's a lot of, uh, Extra work <laughs>
1: yeah. for me
0: to uh, to get in and just kind of get over the the oddness of it or the strangeness of it. Like I just did uh, an episode of Blacklist for the first time, which was very great. I got to work with uh, James Spader, who's <laughs> amazing, brilliant. By the way, backstage he's just unbelievably on top of everything, and it's a, it, it, it's 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 a lesson to watch him. Yeah, but I'm also. Still doing that thing where I'm like, oh my god, I'm on TV and where's the camera? Oh, it's over there. And <laughs> wow, yeah, I, I mustn't. You know, you don't get to rehearse it all that much. You you practice, you run through it a few times, and then I'm like, oh, right, this has to be, this has to be great already. I don't get six weeks to find my way into this. <laughs> yeah. I have to turn it out now. So there's that extra bit of, of, you know, figuring out how does this particular vehicle operate, and not able to fully let go. And, and, and yet, I think maybe someday I'll, I'll book that kind of gig uh, that'll that'll really enable me to, to hurry along. But as an actor in New York, I think you just uh, you audition for all different kinds of stuff that you can that you can do. And I en- I really enjoyed doing the the screen work that i've done uh and i was yeah able to work with some great actors and watch them work too so uh, that yeah i think it's all part of the same world in general but uh obviously a musical being in a musical is very different than being in a crime drama or something something like that but oh my god yeah at, at the heart yeah at the heart of it it's it's and it's at the heart of it the same because you're conveying this thing that we started out talking about. What is it to be a person, you know, and a person in a predicament and how does some people respond to those predicaments and how do we move forward? Or you're part of some story where someone else is going through that and your function is to be the obstacle or your function is to be the, you know, whatever the bad guy or the good guy or doesn't, it's all the same. It's all, even, even, picking a jazz guitar solo is kind of the same, right? There's a situation that you're in and you respond to it and people out there listening will respond, will identify with it. So it's either they're identifying emotionally to the music or they're identifying uh, intellectually and emotionally to the, to the music of the scene or the, the, you know, the rhythm of the, of, of the show So I, I tend to think of it as the same thing And then To offer a uh, Possible Gear shift Into talking about writing Even yes. that's the same it's, it's all the The idea of Here is You know a, What it is to be a person In a particular In a particular um, Oh I'm sorry I've got to turn that dinger off Oh
2: that's fine I'm um,
0: <laughs> I'm so unprofessional.
2: No,
0: if no. I have turned that dinger off. <laughs> now you know that I'm popular. So.
2: Yeah, there it is. That's
0: important. <laughs> 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 That's the proof. Uh, that as we just need these stories, you know? We need stories. And I even think music is a story in one way or another. You know, It starts here, it ends there, takes you from one place to another. And we humans, we need it. We need
2: them. Oh my God, yes, we do. And I want to I wanna jump in here to the glorious death of Comrade What's-His-Name. Yes. You've written lyrics for it. Um, yes. But we all know collaboration is collaboration. So I'm curious with David, uh, David Bridal, who did the book, and the music yes. by Simon Gray. What was, the, what, what was the beginning of that collaboration for the three of you? and then we can talk a little bit about the show as well.
0: Sure, Um, uh, a a dear friend of mine named Tamara Jenkins, she said, I want to write the musical. I have an idea for a musical, and you write music, and I had started to write lyrics as well. So she said, let's both apply to the BMI, Layman Engel Musical Theater Workshop, the BMI Workshop, and and I'd kind of heard about it, And I then quickly learned about it, and we both applied, and then she she moved, and she, you know, whatever, didn't wind up pursuing that. But I got in and realized, "Uh, this is something I really want to do. And because I'm a guitarist and not a piano player, they said, well, at least I tell myself this is why I didn't get in as a composer, but they said, but your lyrics, please come in, and would you attend this if you were... Just a lyricist and not also a composer in our program, and I said, "Sure, I just want to learn how to write musicals. Like I just want to, I just want to be part of that." So I got in as as just a lyricist, and really for the first time, I started um, collaborating with uh, every week. They kind of assign you different partner uh, in your year, and uh, so I would collaborate on these uh, little assignments once a week with a different composer and it was great because i, I uh, first of all was able to focus on lyric writing which um and learn a tremendous amount from pat cook and all the people there at that uh, at bmi and 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 then also figure out what it's like to to collaborate with a composer because i'd always written music myself so that was a sometimes a challenge but by the time i got to work with simon Towards the end of that first year, he and I just clicked like it was crazy, and he said something that nobody had ever said to me before, which was, I want to work in the room at the same time. The other composers that I had worked with, and myself, we would all kind of say, let's talk a lot about what this piece will be, and then go off to our separate corners and write. So I would write a lyric or something, or the composer would write a song, and then we'd basically email it to each other and paste it together, you know, or, right. or they would write music first or put lyrics on top or the other way around. But Simon wanted to be in the room. And I found it very exposing, like oh, he's going to hear my bad first drafts, and but <laughs> then I'm going to hear his bad first draft. And then we would talk to each other for forever about what, what the scene is, what the scene needs, what, you know, what is this character? What was the music going to feel like? And I did kibitz, which was really nice, but he, for me, because I got some of my musical, you know, uh, opinions out there, but he is also, he's a very good lyricist. So he would kibitz and both of us really are just theater people. I think we were just very interested in making a scene work. So we had, you know, great success with that assignment. And then we decided to work together. The second year at BMI is find a project and start working on it so we chose each other and then we started looking around and i had known about this play called the suicide for uh many years uh knowing it was very funny and i just kind of looked at it again and i went i bet we could musicalize this and nobody's done that yet to my knowledge and uh so that's what we did we started to to work on it and um we discovered a lot of very uh uh useful and fun material in it. It really started to resonate with us and with the people who were listening to us at that workshop, you know. And uh, we started to just have so much fun with it, with each other. But we also realized we wanted to adapt it. And it was very much the original. It was written in 1928 in the Soviet Union, the brand-new Soviet Union, by a guy who was a very funny and very well-respected playwright of his era, but he wrote this thing, which was it never mentioned Stalin by name, but it mentioned the revolution, and it kind of said, "You know what that revolution is making things incredibly difficult for for common people like myself and uh, so the So the play was a bit I would say seditious, kind of subversive in a very darkly funny way and <clears throat> So Stalin actually was found out about the play, and um, just before its opening night, he shut down the whole thing and he arrested the playwright Nikolai Erdman and put him in hard labor for twenty years, destroyed his career, destroyed his life. Oh my god! Uh, but the play, yeah, but the comedy managed to survive <laughs> and uh, get out of the country. He managed to survive too. That's a whole other fascinating story. But it had its first. Professional production in nineteen—I'm going to say nineteen seventy or seventy-one—and he was still alive. Erdman. Uh maybe earlier than that, but um, then it then it was translated and uh, done in English at I think the Royal Shakespeare or maybe the National Theatre in in London, and and that is a copy that uh, that where I discovered it in nineteen—you know—twenty years later in 1994. I think I read it for the first time and fell in love with it. But yeah, it's this wild thing that kind of got out, but also very much products of its time in terms of the storytelling and also the comedy and the references. So we decided that by musicalizing it, we could kind of extract uh, what was universal about it, namely oppression, which unfortunately is is universal, and what it's like to feel like a, a peon you know citizen who was unable to affect much change and and how everybody turns on each other and it's really darkly funny and uh, uh that is always my favorite stuff anyway you know but my favorite movie is probably Dr. Strangelove and yeah. anything that and take the you know the deepest, darkest stuff and make you laugh the hardest about it i i, uh, I adore it feels very much uh the way what we've done is kind of pulled out the uh, I'm going to say the honeymooners, <laughs> okay. the, you know, the, sure. kind of the bombastic uh, lead character and his long suffering wife uh, and, uh, and, and and kind of drew that stuff out and universalized quite a lot of the rest of it, but we, and and changed the story. I started talking about how Simon and I were working together, but we were having the hardest time actually adapting. Like you'd change one little thing and everything else would fall apart. And we'd go around in circles. We were terrible at it. So I said, you know, let me ask my friend David uh, to take a look and start working with us on it. And uh, we all just fell right into a great uh, collaboration. Uh we really have great respect for each other and a lot of fun so
2: i you know I really wish I could see it. It's the glorious death of comrade what's his name it's going to be uh Monday January twentieth nine thirty at fifty four below right there in New York City. Right. I wish I could see it. I'm curious what in this process and maybe even previous ones, have you learned about your own process of writing? Oh well. Uh, I had to learn, I think, a lot about
0: collaboration, and one of the great things was um, uh, I had tended to think of it, to be honest, as as like, well, there's me over here and that person on the other side of the table, and we're putting our ideas forward, and then if he knocks down my idea, that's bad, or you know, it was kind of this weird competition in my head, but Simon, both Simon and David are not that type of person, and uh, I don't think i am but i i was i had been in some collaborations where it felt a little bit too much like a battle so maybe i am i have to look at myself but simon mm-hmm. will we'll sit next to you on that on the same side and and then the script was in front of us and when i'm talking metaphorically but you know the idea is that we're not you know if he tears down an idea it's an idea that he's tearing down And I can listen to that and go, oh, he's not tearing down me. He's tearing down this idea that's on the table in front of us. Maybe it came from me, but I see what he's saying, you know? And so we'll sit next to each other and we'll write, we'll really create the thing without personal, without taking anything personally. And that is so useful as a collaborative method. So I highly recommend it, Uh, you know, just thinking about. The thing is there in front of you, and you're both working on it, or all three of you are working on it, and it has nothing to do with personal anything. So that is great, because you can say anything you want. You can say, wow, I really think that's a bad idea, and then you can also defend it. or That's even the wrong word. It's not defending, because nobody's being offensive, but you can say, well, I still think it's a great idea, because X, Y, and Z. Right. And you right. can have a really lively debate about it, but it, it feels just fun. And uh, so that was, I think, probably the biggest kind of internal learning experience.
2: How have, you, how, how have you gotten better at realizing when something's done? You know, between like, oh, that's a good enough idea, or that's a fantastic idea, or that idea will just, you know, serve this moment. Is there an internal dialogue you have in making those decisions?
0: This comedy, and if you've done it in front of an audience, um, you know. it's done when <laughs> it's done when you get a big laugh. Then <laughs> you never want to change it again. And if it's not getting a big laugh, then yeah, you, you feel like uh, if it just feels uh, awkward or it's never working the way you thought it would. So comedy has that, you know, very clear way of telling. Um, you know, I'm, we're about we're going into um, this concert on January twentieth at mm-hmm. Fifty Four Below. The tickets are available on their website, and we are uh, absolutely um, still tinkering, but in the tiniest of ways. Like I've been thinking about the end song, the last song, and thinking about the larger, you know, I hate to use the word message, but kind of the the. The, uh, punchline, maybe? <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the end note, let's put it this way, the end concept sure. of the entire show. So it needs to, it wants to feel like a, a, like a real lock.
1: Right.
0: And uh, at least in this show, it does. And uh, I had been just, it was feeling great, but I was like, uh, and I changed, I think, three syllables, three lines, or rather one line with a very short line and I've added a new line and I'm dying to see if it works, but I think it just, it, it's the little touch of salt or something that will actually help drive home the point of the play or the Airdman's point really from the original play that needed. So I'm, we're still tinkering tiny, in tiny ways.
1: Right.
0: And probably, you know, when we, when we go to a, a a big production if you know, our goal is to get off Broadway and we're working on that. We have a wonderful executive producer in Jen Bender and, um, a whole team of people. And we're ready to, you know, make that move. We're looking for theaters, the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sure, you know, have a preview period and we'll still be tinkering. But, uh, I'm not sure if you're ever, <laughs> if you ever feel like you're totally done, you know?
2: Yeah. You just kind of, but, but there let is, it go. <laughs>
0: uh, yeah, you, Yeah, yeah, exactly. You feel like, well, this is certainly deserves to be on stage. And you go around and you see 10 plays uh, in New York. And you think, yeah, mine could have been in this batch, like it it should have been, it's good enough to be one of these. And these are on. (laughs) I'm not saying it's it's the greatest play that's ever been written. But I'm also because I'm an artist, I'm never going to. Entirely say that I think it, but I'm not going to say it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I'm also not going to say, oh, this is not this doesn't deserve to be on in this playing field. You know, when you're working with material that's not good enough, right? It's oh, this isn't ready for professional production. But you don't you don't say, oh, oh wait, am I you know am I am I Beethoven yet? Right. <laughs> so when I then I'm allowed. Perform, but you just say, "Well, this is good enough to be in the world," and then you keep trying to be Beethoven. You keep trying to be the greatest thing that's ever written.
1: Yeah,
2: yeah. No, that I mean, that's but don't a, let it, don't let it stop you. You know, exactly, exactly. Because I mean, you can also see what's out there on the playing field, and if it's par for the course. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can you you know, you go look at a show, you see what's what's playing where, and what the you know yeah. what the standards are of the day or whatever you know. What the material is.
0: Yeah, that's right. And you're like, well, this is a playground that I'm good enough to be playing in.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, switching gears a little bit. What Do you have a, a morning ritual, morning routine? Do you meditate?
0: I chant. And um, I, ch- uh, I chant Nam-myoho-renge-kel, uh, which is, uh, people have heard of sometime, And that's uh, Buddhism. And I've been doing it since I was, uh, I'm going to say 20. 20 or twenty-one is when I started doing that. and yeah. So every morning, I'll I'll spend as little as ten minutes or five minutes doing it, and it's maybe as long as an hour, but it it varies. Yeah. Um, generally less than an hour, I, I must say. But it's it's not even about how much you do, so much as uh, establishing some sort of consistency. And I love it because it's not. Uh, it's not a list of commandments and it's not a, um, you know, it's entirely open about, you know, it's got no rules, about how a person is supposed to be as long as they're not cruel. Then, you know, it's, it's all, you're a good person, right? You know, you know, being the first gay wedding I was ever at was a Buddhist wedding. And, you know, it just seems to be totally wide open, which I love. So, um, but what it helps me do is figure out both long-term vision for my life, what do I want it to be, why, and, you know, who who am I here, why am I, you know, how can I be helpful and how can I be fulfilled, feel fulfilled. Those are big, long, lifelong questions, but also what does that look like today? Uh, what kind of mood do I want to be in today? Do I want to be, you know, if I'm feeling kind of weak or if I'm feeling like uh, the the difficulty of the world out there, you know, watching the news has gotten me feeling so down that I don't know how I'm going to help the environment or I don't know how I'm going to help, you know, our government be be, uh, truly great or uh, uh, it's really daunting. So I just figure out, uh day to day, what is my part? how can i uh make a difference as corny as that sounds uh How can I help my kid navigate it you know I have have a beautiful, healthy relationship with my uh my significant other, my spouse, my wife and um you know you talk, so i'm talking about the big picture, the long range goals, and the the little kind of like what is today gonna feel like? Yeah. It, it it helps me. Uh, it helps me and, and I know everybody in the world has a different way of doing that or uh, or they don't but uh that's that's all fine. You know, my way uh has has clicked with me and been really um, a beautiful part of my of my life and uh, has just enabled me not to be better than anybody else but to be better than I was yesterday, I think and uh and forgive myself when I'm not and just Kind of keep the keep my hands on my the steering wheel, as it were.
2: Yeah. Oh, I love that. Are you um? Are you a big reader? Mm-hmm. Do you have any favorite books?
0: I just read something that I love called "The Overstory," which uh, is by oh man, what power I think his last name sure. is, and I can't remember his first name, but um, it won a Pulitzer, so it'll be out there if you are looking, and it's a brilliant book about. Um, ostensibly about trees and humans and our relationship to to trees. It's a a multi-plot story with a bunch of fascinating characters, and they all have these relationships, uh, either conscious or unconscious, initially with uh, trees in their lives. And it seems, it's funny to to say that. It sounds uh, 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 almost silly, but but it's so deep and it's really affected the way I, I relate to not just the natural world, but uh, in, in terms of plant life, that's all around us, that's been around for thousands and thousands, and thousands of millions of years, but uh, you know, my fellow people and how uh, we talked about how music is kind of pure emotion as opposed to theater, which puts words on things. Uh, and I think it's a little bit like that like my relationship with a tree can be much more that musical what is this spiritual connection not to get too woo woo, but i really do think that there is you know when somebody comes into your room the room changes you feel that
2: oh my god yes
0: and yeah right when oh, you, yes my daughter my daughter was two and we were at some zoo or three i guess and we were at some zoo and she was right up against the glass next to this big lizard. I don't know what it was. One of those small alligator types of things. I forget what they're called. And she just started, she looked at us like she just started crying, but she wasn't looking at it. Uh (laughs) I went over and I sat next to this thing and you're two inches away from it through this thick glass. And I was like, Oh, this thing feels cold and (laughs) and it's a different life like i felt this thing right and that definitely sounds crazy i know but i believe that uh we connect to uh to every living living thing that way and this book makes a great case for for trees in our lives and uh you know they're hundreds of years old and they're really growing and they're interconnected and they talk to each other in a way like uh through exchanging chemicals through the air and underground, and it's it, it, we're a part of it. The- we don't think about it very often, but that book is was was great, and it's a good example of of storytelling uh, really changing your life,
2: really opening you up. The Overstory by Richard Powers. I have to read that. There it is. That's a good, yeah, that's a great book. I mean, you're bringing up so many great, right, like Oprah says, spiritual beings having a human experience. But also, Mm. you can can feel it, you know, just let's say we bring it back to theater for a moment in the rehearsal room and something a little funny happens. No one says anything, but everyone feels it. And you could feel it. Oh, that moment was weird. And no one addresses it verbally but uh-huh. all you need is the physical you know or the spiritual feeling of that which speaks yeah. so much louder than any words that come out of your mouth you
0: know you know what we wouldn't be feeling this if we didn't believe in it i stand on stage yeah. every night and my job is to throw that spirit to the back wall yes. and yes. when i yes. go to a show right when i go see a show i'm sitting in the back row and watching a cast do exactly that and so it, it's just so obvious in theater. <laughs> oh yeah. You know, we talk about, we talk about, oh, this was a good audience or it was a bad audience. I never think of, a, I'm trying to be very strict with myself and never say an audience is bad, but they're quiet or they're nervous or they're, uh, you know, they're in, but that's a, that's crazy. That's a thousand people in this theater. If it's sold out and that I get to be in every night, which is extraordinary. Yeah. But, you're in a pool of people. You're in a big stew of spirit that has mixed together, uh, and and everybody feels it. And if they're in a, and, you know, we say, oh, they're a great house, then it just means that they're laughing a lot, usually. Right. But uh, they're kind of alive, or they catch each other's uh, moods. Moods are are definitely contagious, I think, and Very. that again is what it's why you go to the theater. It's what it's what it's it's what we do. It's why you go see a movie in a room full of people. You know, I mean, yeah. and yeah, right.
2: It's such a good it's such a good point you're bringing up. I mean, yeah, the only bad audience is the one that doesn't show up. <laughs> <laughs> If oh, yeah. If, you, yeah. if they're there and they paid and I'm getting paid and we're all working and we're enjoying what we're doing, that's a good audience. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You could take it however you want yeah. it. <laughs> and
0: The yeah, the one audience that was the hardest was I was doing, this was at the Studio Theater in, in uh, Washington, D.C., and I couldn't tell you what happened, but there was a matinee. We were doing uh, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are Dead. Sure, yeah. And there was a matinee, and it was in thrust, so there's, you know, audience to the left, audience to the right, and audience in front of you. And the left and the right sections were filled with boys, high school-age boys, wearing jackets with patches. I'm assuming that some, you know, high school uh, boys prep school or whatever, I don't know what it, what it was. I never found out. And I was excited until I realized, that there must have been some pact. They decided that all sit there with their arms folded and not laugh, not do anything, not clap at oh. the end. Oh, they shoot. Yeah, it was like a protest or something, yeah. but we, not, not against us. I, I have no idea right. what happened. But that audience, and we had two hours to sit there, And we had an audience in front of us that was very normal and we're laughing and, you know, having a good time. So we wound up, you know, favoring them. But part of me was definitely going, you guys, what is going on, you know, in my head? And I was still right up until bows, just trying to break some of that ice, you know. And it was, I didn't succeed necessarily, but uh, it was like, oh man, it was was a spiritual workout for me. Because you two two hours or two and a half hours, whatever that play was, of just trying to get these guys to maybe giggle against their will or something. (laughs) It was it was amazing. That's the one audience that I would say maybe I could call them a bad audience, but because they were malicious. They were you know, there was ill intent.
2: Yeah. Intentional. Yeah yeah and
0: not only to and not only was it affecting us, but for no reason, because I don't know what message they were trying to send right. but they, it was affecting the other people, you know the other hundred people in that one section that w- were not them, so they were being bad boys, i would say but um but why you know uh, and so yeah, I just kind of, of well, they're all just human, and so. I'm still going to try and get in there somehow and say like, this was the message of this show. You know, we had Tom Stoppard's words <laughs> as as tools to try and break through them. It was wild. What a wild experience. I'm still contemplating that one. Yeah. But, uh, but it also taught me a lot about, well, what, what are we doing? Like how many people are in an audience? A Chicago once somebody said, uh, uh, one of my colleagues was outside collecting for Broadway uh, Cares afterwards, standing out there with a bucket, you know. And someone came up and said, you know, I just want you to know that my husband and I bought tickets to this show three months ago. But he died one month ago. And I, we love coming to see theater so much, so I came. And I sat next to an empty seat, and I feel like he was here with me tonight. So thank you. And I think better all the time because um, there's always somebody in that dark space that is the audience. There's always somebody who's got some story like that. And if you show up and you don't give your best and don't try and, you know, break through or throw your spirit to the back of that wall, you're really, you're taking somebody's money who needs you desperately to be doing that work. And so try really hard never phone it in to never just do a fine show. I want to do something that's really going to bust through, you know. Fortunately, when you're writing, when when I'm writing uh, the Glorious Death of What's the name, I get to do that in slow motion. I get to take my time with every lyric, you know, and say, what what's going to break through? What do people need to hear right now? You know, and, uh, and then leave it up to the performers to do that other side of it. But, uh, I absolutely adore the arts of any kind and, and uh, any, anyone in any profession who's trying to break through to their fellow human beings and make it good. There are, I actually do believe there are some politicians out there who are doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, uh, I've yeah. got my ideas of who I think they are. But uh, I think there's, you know, you wouldn't go to a doctor and the doctor says, wow, what a terrible patient. You know, right. I gave him medicine and he didn't get better. What an idiot! <laughs> I, uh, you know, <laughs> that that there's some actors who are like you know, oh, what terrible audience. I'm right. like, no, it's your job. It's your job to break through. You know. So, and I'm mostly I just have to be strict with myself because it can be a temptation to take it easy sometimes. But, uh, but that's what that's what all of it is, and that's what this podcast is. I know because you're talking about. You know, and asking questions that are uh, well, they were very meaningful to me, anyway. No,
2: well, thank you for saying that. <gasps>
0: yeah, absolutely.
2: That's the idea. <laughs> and I'm glad. I mean, yeah, hey, if you're pick, if you're catching on, maybe at least ten others are. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> all right.
2: But that's no, you're right, and that's such a beautiful story. You know, the woman who saw Chicago, because that's all it is. It's a you know, yeah. it's a spiritual experience Mm theater and life. And that's what's Mm -hmm. incredible about these certain stories that we tell is, you know, if someone can learn something or unleash some power or feeling that they've been holding on to, we've done our job.
0: Yeah. You know, and this show is, uh, I really do wish you could see it, but you'll come and see it another time. I'll
2: come. Yeah. I'm going to come to the off Broadway one.
0: Yeah. There you go. I'm excited. Yeah. Reach out. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll meet, but, uh, (laughs) Yeah, and it's so, to use comedy, too, it's just, you know, I've heard people, when we've done readings of it, they're in gales of laughter, and I just think, Herdman, I wish you could be here still to hear this. Like, these ideas are, are, um, they're making people, you know, people's diaphragms spasm. That's what laughter is. (laughs) (laughs) Like, somehow or other, that that spiritual connection is having physical, you know, uh, Explode, causing physical explosions in people, and I just love that. I love a room full of people just screaming. So, yeah, that—that's what we're very much looking forward to uh, on January twentieth. And as we as we bring this show out into the world,
2: I love it. I love it. Such a great conversation. Um, as we wrap up here, metaphorically speaking, yeah. word or phrase that you would put on a billboard for millions of people to see—does anything come to mind? <sighs> Yes, we are all connected, yes
0: and and your job i mean now now I can expound on that, but yeah, your job is to is to uh make it good, you know, but people think when we're, we're disconnected, I think that tends to be at play in a lot of the disagreements that that are out there politically and and which just means socially, you know like we're connected, you know, yeah. We need to help each other. We're all in this together, or you're on your own. I prefer we're all in this together, frankly. And Yeah. And, uh, that's, what, that's what theater is, and I think that's what every good human interaction is. A connection. Yeah.
2: Well, I certainly feel that with you, and I know that anyone Likewise. listening to this— Well, thank you. <laughs> and I know anyone listening to this will, will feel the same.
0: Thank you so much, Clay. This was
2: wonderful. I yes, love it. the glorious, glorious death of Comrade what's his name, January twentieth, yes. fifty four below, nine thirty. Very excited to to hear about it, and excited to see the next iteration of it. Ray, this has been a great. I'm
0: remiss if I didn't say we have a fantastic director, Don Stevenson, and an amazing cast with. Uh, uh, Jackie Hoffman, who's hysterical in it, and yes, Drew McVeigh, who's been in oh, yes. everything on Broadway, who's an absolute genius performer, uh, Christine Bouchour, who's brilliant in everything she does, and that's why I married her, <laughs> and, <laughs> and just, uh John Dallas, and so many just comedy uh, wizards who who have been around Broadway for for ages, and uh, the the cast has really come together. I, I can't wait to uh, to be out there playing with them
2: this is exciting Ray is there anything else you want to add before we wrap up here no I'm good all right very good ladies and gentlemen boys and girls Raymond Bocour. you've been listening to entertainment X the podcast you can follow Entertainment X on Instagram at underscore Entertainment X underscore. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join Clay next week for another Curiosity Conversation on Entertainment X. Thank you for listening.